0: Good afternoon, Chris. How's it going? Interesting weekend at the G7 and also some interesting pieces that you have written for our Substack account. Um, And that's where I'd like to start, actually, by referencing when you wrote about Boris Johnson and the parallels that people are inclined to draw with Trump. Um, You wrote some pretty stringent stuff about Boris Um, As somebody who lives in the UK, uh, you clearly didn't vote for him and you're clearly not a fan. Um, What's your problem with Boris?
1: I've been watching him for many years, Jim, like a lot of political anoraks like myself, been trying to figure him out. I've never met the man, so obviously I can only do it by inference. And I'm a firm believer in the watch what people do rather than what they say. Looking at Johnson's actions, all the things that he's done as a politician, Mayor of London, Member of Parliament, Foreign Secretary, Prime Minister, I can only draw one conclusion about what drives him. And it's common to all politicians, it's that drive for power. And when it comes to power, one of the questions I think we, we always ask ourselves is, what are the restraints on power? What what constrains politicians doing what they would do in, in the worst of circumstances? In many cases, for, for, for decent politicians, I think we, we, we sometimes, very occasionally, observe them doing the right thing. They don't just do things for electoral reasons, for getting votes. They sometimes consider the greater good. And I think that as societies, we value those kinds of politicians, even though we're quite cynical about their ability to, to pursue the greater good. Jean-Claude Juncker, during the great financial crisis, famously said, when asked about policies to alleviate that crisis, said, and I quote, we all know what to do, but we don't know how to get elected if we do it. Because sometimes doing things that are the right thing, doing things for the greater good, don't carry electoral appeal. And there's lots of examples of that throughout history. I think Johnson is unique. And this is perhaps one of the differences with Trump, or perhaps the key difference, is that nothing actually motivates him other than that desire for power. And I don't think he actually knows what to do with that power. So there are constraints on Trump. The first one is that vile though they may be, Trump does have a belief system. We might think it's incoherent. We might think it it doesn't make a lot of sense. We may not like it, or we might think that it's great, whatever it is. Trump clearly has a set of beliefs. And I think Trump, therefore, is constrained by those beliefs. He He did occasionally do things consistent with those beliefs. He pulled troops out of the Middle East, for example, contrary to the advice of of his military types and all sorts of different things that he did. Nothing constrains Johnson other than, as far as I can tell, the opinion pages of the Daily Telegraph. And most of the time, those pages, those commentators just simply fall into line and agree with whatever Johnson does. So I think he's more dangerous than Trump in that he isn't constrained. And he must wake up every day thinking, my God, I've gotten away with it. Again, something that he has said or something that he has done, whether at the small level or with all of the accusations about unnecessary deaths from COVID in the UK, some pretty big accusations. And he continuously gets away with it. Whatever happens, you take the Dominic Cummings revelations of a couple of weeks ago, his opinion polls ratings just seem to go up. So he gets away with it. I think that underlying all of that, unlike Trump, is the absence of a belief system. In the piece, I talk somewhat pretentiously, perhaps, about existential nihilism, which is a philosophy that says that nothing really matters. And I don't think anything matters to Johnson. I think that he thinks that it's all a game, and it's a jolly good game. It's a game played by old Etonians against other old Etonians, and Johnson just loves to win. So I think the two driving forces of Johnson are having fun and having the power to have as much fun as he possibly can. So he's a man unconstrained. There are no consequences to his actions, no bad ones anyway.
0: Hold on a sec, Chris. If you think about Boris Johnson, what he has achieved, he managed to get elected mayor of a city occupied by left liberals like yourself. He won a resounding victory for the Tories in the last general election. If you look at his popular appeal to voters in working-class northern English cities. I mean, that's hardly Old Etonian versus Old Etonian. You really don't have your finger on the pulse here, do you? Because Boris does appear to have an incredible high level of popularity amongst the people. And if you're a politician, that's really all that matters.
1: No, it isn't all that matters. Because as I said, I do think that we should demand from our politicians occasionally, from time to time, once in a while, that they do something for the greater good. I don't believe Johnson is capable of doing that. If I take your first remark about being mayor of London, being elected by lefty liberals, that's because Johnson put on the clothes of a lefty liberal, of somebody that wasn't particularly ideological, of an internationalist, somebody who was in favor of immigration. All of those things appealed to the Islington liberal that he now so despises. He has now done a complete gets his cabinet ministers in particular. I I recall a speech made by Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, when she denigrated North Londoners, which in some quarters was taken as a dog whistle remark that was verged on anti-Semitic. Not everybody agreed with that. And the constant disparagement of the elites, you'll often see in speeches and writings of the people who are closest to, to Johnson, a constant refrain about them and us, and this, is my, this speaks to my spe- second piece on our Substack site about populism and the techniques that they, that they adopt, is that they do whatever is necessary to, to gain power. And the way they've done it since Johnson was mayor of London, but not while he was mayor of London, is by, via this populist approach, whereby he creates this mythical enemy of a graduate London lefty liberal elite that is trying to do down the rest of the country and in particular, if you live in the north of England. And this, for now, is remarkably successful. But it's only successful in the context of the British electoral system, remember. He doesn't have to convince everybody that the elites are against them and are doing them down. The opposition, thanks to the the first-past-the-post voting system, which we have here, unlike your proportional representation, is very fragmented. Johnson still gets less than 50% of the vote, He won that general election with an 88-seat majority, but nevertheless, if you add up all of the votes of all of the parties that opposed him, he wouldn't have got that. So there are various nuances to this argument. You also mentioned winning Brexit. Of course he won Brexit, but I would assert, as I think that is very easy to demonstrate, he won it with a whole series of lies. Lies that convince people of the economic benefits of Brexit, but more importantly, much more importantly than the economics, which I don't think played a huge factor, is that he created this tribal populist mythological fantasy of an elite in Brussels and to a lesser extent in London that was doing down the British population and that somehow or other Johnson's really taking from the Trump playbook of saying three things. The elites are doing you down. Secondly, I feel your pain, and thirdly, i'm going to do something about it now, of course, he'll never do anything about it. The leveling up agenda that is his promise to do something about the pain that people feel it's, it's a complete nonsense he'll never he'll never be able to achieve that. so I reject your uh, accusations, Jim, that I don't have my finger on the pulse I think i've got. Tr- um, Mr. Johnson nailed. And I think that the G7 leaders, the G6, if you like, who consider himself consider Johnson to be a Trump clone are only partly right in that I do think he is a clone of Trump in terms of adopting all those populist them and us strategies, the othering of other, other bits of your population. I think he's worse than Trump because A, he has no beliefs and B, those the lack of a belief system means that he's utterly unconstrained. So potentially he's much worse than Trump.
0: That—that That is the nature of power, though. Um, if you as an individual want to set out to change something you have, or to do something, you have got to get elected to power. And to get elected to power, you've got to do certain things. And Boris certainly is a master at that. And I would argue infinitely better than Trump at achieving, at at doing that and at achieving power. Um, I was thinking back here as you were speaking there about, you know, politicians and the expectation, or at least the hope we have that politicians once in a while will do the right thing. And uh, I think back on probably my political hero in this country, definitely the politician that stands out for me, uh, that I have most admiration for in my adult life um, was Alan Dukes, who was leader of Fianna Gael back in 1987. And he famously signed the Talis strategy, um, which basically gave F- Fianna Fáil in government um, uh, the, 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 the wherewithal to form a government and to start implementing policies provided those policies were the correct ones. So it was the first time ever we saw any semblance of a Fianna Gael leader giving any sort of leeway to Fianna Fáil, which was an utterly sensible thing to do. I think it was instrumental in the turnaround in the Irish economy after 1987 um, and certainly set the roots of the Celtic Tiger in motion. But what happened to Alan Jukes, as a result of that? Uh, he was turfed out by his own party. Um, very shortly afterwards. So that just goes to prove the point that um, if you want to be a politician in power, um, doing the right thing is a very dangerous thing to do.
1: Yes, absolutely. And um, we all know that politicians have to do whatever is necessary to get elected. But they then are also concerned with other things, not just about doing the right thing, but connected to that. A politician, we are told, always in biographies and autobiographies, becomes, once they are in power, become concerned with their legacy. Now, just think of the legacy that that man you just described, Alan Dukes, has left Ireland. The history books are entirely consistent with that narrative that you just described there. And for many people, not just you, he is a hero. I doubt we're going to say the same thing of Donald Trump, and Boris Johnson, in terms of doing the right thing, he may well be heroes to some people, but those people would be more like Nigel Farage than you, Jim so it, it, it is about legacy, it is about how you 're going to be remembered it's how the history books are going to, you, are going to write you up, and most politicians are actually concerned with that, and I would say that the one thing that Johnson doesn't know what to do with is he doesn't know what to do with the power that he 's got. All he knows about is sloganizing. Blustering, telling lies, and has absolutely no idea what to do with the levers and buttons of power that he's got to pull and push. He has no objectives because he has no beliefs. And that was entirely consistent with his term of office in London Mayor. He came up with a lot of harebrained schemes that cost a lot of money, garden bridges over the Thames being one. As Foreign Secretary and Prime Minister, he's mooted building tunnels under the Irish Sea and bridges over it with a roundabout around the Isle of Man, all that kind of nonsense. This is the stuff that he's good at. He couldn't care less about actual outcomes. Do you think he cares about the environment? One of the many subjects of the G7 of the weekend? Not at all. He really doesn't devote any brain space to that subject at all, but he knows it, it actually plays well in two regards. Um, at home with his missus, and with it now, a considerable proportion of of the electorate. So he knows that it sounds good, but does he concern himself with the detail? Does he care? No, and no. So yes, Jim, I'm not a fan.
0: Yeah, it's it's it's. I suppose at a, at a serious level, um, what Boris represents and what Trump represented uh, was pretty is and was pretty dreadful stuff. And now that I think about it as well, one of the things that has made my life a lot better in the last six months, I have to say is not having to put up with the social media um, stuff from Donald Trump. You know, since he was thrown off social media platforms, since he lost power, um, life has become actually more pleasant at many levels. And I guess it does give us hope um, in this very depressing political environment that you described, that at least people like Trump eventually get kicked out of power and, uh, I don't
1: think you've got much hope, Jim, at all sitting where you're sitting because populism has is, is been shown in the United States or at least for as long as Donald Trump was in power and here in the United Kingdom right now and elsewhere, Hungary, Poland, maybe even France next year if Le Pen beats Macron. It's seen to be a winning strategy. It has the obvious attraction that it wins. So therefore people are following it. And you've got a party currently at the moment sitting in the opinion polls Looking like a shoe in for the next government when the general election in Ireland uh, comes in a while. Sinn Fein, they are a quintessential pop- populist party. And if I define populism as creating an other to be loathed, appealing to the tribal instincts present in all of us, then that's what they do. And they've created this other which is the property-owning, private health insurance-owning denizens of South County, Dublin, and elsewhere, who are the ones doing down the people of Ireland. And life is a lot more complicated than that. People are more complicated than that. But these populists do the really what management consultants and astrologers do, which is they put people into very simple boxes of, of categorization and then they create the tribal instinct by telling them one group that the other group is trying to do them down. It is far more complicated than that. But if you pre- present these simplistic analyses of the situation, if you se- tell people we know what's wrong and it's all their fault and we're going to correct it, it's it's pretty heady, powerful stuff. And it gains you power. And I think that's what's heading in your direction too, Jim. Of course,
0: Chris, it takes two to tango in the sense that... Uh Sinn Féin, you know, have this very populist agenda. But on the other hand, they a, a lot of their um, strong performance in the opinion polls is reflecting the total incompetence of the government we have, um, you know, the way they have and continue to handle the COVID crisis, the communication strategy. Um, I could go on and on, but certainly the coalition government we've had in place um, for almost 12 months at this stage Um, is really feeding into Sinn Féin's hands. And I I would agree with you at this juncture, unless there's a dramatic change in the performance of government, which I wouldn't hold my breath for, um, the Shinners will be a shoe-in, and and then we'll see where populism will get us. But it was also interesting at the weekend to see the performance of Joe Biden. Uh, You know, the Joe Biden and the United States by implication are re-engaging again with the world. Um, I'm not sure you could describe Biden as some sort of uh, populist politician. Um, he do- he does, of course, say all the right things to appease uh, the particular electorate that he wants to appease. But it is good and it is reassuring to see the United States re-engaging with the world again, and it does give one a little bit more faith in. The political future, but I, I totally take your point about if you look at what's happening in mother many other countries with Orbán, um, Germany, of course, will be very interesting um, come September. Uh, so, and the Shinners, of course, here in this country. So, uh, but but at least Biden does represent um, a step in a better direction. And uh, as I say, I think it is really good to see the United States starting to reassume its position as leader of the free world. And
1: uh, I would say long may that continue. The problem, of course, Jim, is that it may not continue for much longer. It may only continue till November of next year, if and when the Republicans who have morphed into the party of Donald Trump regain control of the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, is already limbering up for the second half of Biden's presidency. Only in the last couple of days, he's talked about what they're going to do to the Supreme Court during that period before the next presidential election in three and a half years' time. Uh, and there's all sorts of sinister soundings coming from that. Biden, it could be said, is the last of the generation of internationalists, Atlanticists present in the United States. He's an Atlanticist internationalist to his, you know, to his last breath. That's the history of of the man um, over the last four or five decades. And that at best, one can say that half of America is behind him. At worst, you can say that half of America isn't. So I would echo your remarks that we would hope that this is got the, the, the sign of a comeback for those sorts of things, which I think are an, an unalloyed goods, good things for the world economy, for the world political system. But I really am worried that the populist plague is, is much more contagious than the India variant. And too many politicians see it as an easy route to power. And once the populist genie is out of the bottle, it's very difficult to put it back in.
0: Indeed, indeed it is. And here in this country today, we got, um, I suppose, another demonstration of the impact of populist politics and Boris getting Brexit done. Uh, we had trade numbers released here for uh, April. So we now have the first four months of the year. And from a trade perspective, they have been pretty dramatic. Um, in, the, in, in the first four months of the year, You know, overall exports are down by 4.8%. Uh, but what's really interesting is the breakdown of trade with the United Kingdom. So for example, in the first four months, exports to Great Britain up by 7%. Okay, to reach 4.1 billion. Um, exports to Northern Ireland up by 40.2 percent. So you'd look at those headline numbers and think, well, uh Brexit isn't having much of an impact on the um on, on the Irish trade relationship with the United Kingdom. But then if you delve beneath it, you find that food exports to Great Britain are down by 17.5%. Uh, But the export of chemicals, and this is the dual nature of the Irish economy again that we've spoken about on this podcast numerous times, chemical exports to to Great Britain up by over 40%. Uh, But what's even more dramatic, I think, is the fact that our food imports from Great Britain are down by 53.9%. That's about 2.1 billion in absolute terms. So Brexit is having an absolutely dramatic impact on the trading relationship between um, Great Britain and Ireland. Um, And what's another interesting point is that um, the trade relationship with Northern Ireland is expanding significantly. Exports to Northern Ireland up by over 40%. um, and imports from Northern Ireland up by almost 61%. So the bilateral trade on the island is is small, but it is picking up significantly. So Brexit having lots of hugely distortionary influences on the Irish trade performance.
1: I know we've got no evidence for this whatsoever, Jim, so it's pure speculation, but I'd be interested in your views. So that's a lot of exports of food and agricultural products in particular from Britain to Ireland falling a lot, but an awful, or an awfully big increase in those exports from Northern Ireland to Ireland. Do you think there's any trade diversion going on?
0: Uh, yes, there is undoubtedly trade diversion going on. Uh, that Which is,
1: sounds uh, illegal, which from an EU perspective, from a single market perspective, would be very worrying.
0: It, it would be extremely worrying. Uh, absolutely. There is no doubt about that. But yeah, I I, I definitely think there, there, is, there is evidence of that happening. Um, I, I was then looking at Eurostat published uh, trade data for the United Kingdom and, um, sorry, for the European Union, but their EU exports to the United Kingdom were down by 3.3%. So I guess from an EU perspective, Brexit hasn't had that much impact on the export side of the equation. But EU imports from the United Kingdom are down by over 27%. So a pretty dramatic impact on um, British exports to the European Union rather than the other way around. Uh, What's happening here? Um, It it would appear from this that it is much easier to export stuff to the United Kingdom from the EU rather than the other way around.
1: I think that's because there are some checks, bureaucracy, paperwork being insisted upon by the European side, so including Ireland. So if you want to import some food and agricultural products into Ireland or to France or Germany or any of the other countries from the UK, there are certain fees that need to be paid when you file these forms. And certain firms are saying it's not worth the candle, whereas the British are not insisting on this. So it's easier to export to than import from the United Kingdom at the moment, and that clearly is having some effect on the numbers. This all, of course, on a day in which Britain has announced a free trade deal with Australia, which is almost comical, actually, Because, but it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. It's far more important to have these headlines of a trade deal with Australia than sort out the trading relationship properly with the European Union. Ireland is a much bigger trading partner for the United Kingdom than is Australia. UK-EU trade relative to UK-Australia trade, it's probably a factor of about 30, 35 to 1 in terms of the trading relationship. And in terms of the government's own figures on what this trade deal will mean for that boost to GDP in the UK over the next 15 years, I could show you a chart I'm looking at on my screen at the moment Where you can hardly see that effect. It gets lost in the rounding. It's almost insignificant from zero. It's just, it's it's unimaginably small. You wonder why it's worth doing, but then you remember the basis of this populist government is to generate headlines, it's to generate bluster, and it's to generate lies about what is important and lies about what is unimportant. It's saying that the trade deal with Australia is important, but it isn't. But of course, that doesn't matter. Jim we should move on to other things um, other than trade because I think we could all drive ourselves mad thinking about these issues which unfortunately are going to be with us for some time and I wanted to ask you a question actually a question about Simon Coveney who the other day said that Ireland wants to respect the common travel area. Now I wondered whether he'd actually been listening to our podcasts what do you think? Well
0: it was was an interesting comment from him Um, I, I think he would be getting that sort of feedback from people who understand these things. And um we we disagreed, I think fundamentally on the significance of the way the common travel area was being treated on both sides of the equation uh, or both sides of the of, of the of, of the countries. But um I, I mean I, I I just don't actually and this is my cynicism about politics I actually don't buy what these people are saying. I mean, it's one thing to come out and say we're going to res- respect it. But on the other hand, we have suggestions today about new restrictions being put in place for travel. Between- oh,
1: they're not they're not suggestions. They've they've extended the quarantine period for for us Brits, should we wish to go to Ireland?
0: Exactly. And and they're talking about for people with with two vaccines or full vaccination, they will still have to quarantine for five days what the hell is all that about? No, that
1: that makes no sense whatsoever. No, but but um,
0: that that's why, Chris. In answer to your question, you know, Simon Coveney came out and made that comment. And I, I like Coveney as a politician, I have to say. But for people like Coveney coming out making those sort of statements, they're meaningless. It's just, you know, you you, you look at what they do rather than what they say. What they are doing at the moment is definitely flying in the face of the spirit of the common travel area, uh, which you certainly have deep concerns about, particularly the impact it might have on the UK side.
1: But Dublin streets are quiet again, I believe.
0: Uh, Yeah. the Amazingly, at the weekend, very civilised. We did not have a repeat of the street activities that we'd seen over the previous couple of weekends. Uh, why is that happening? Um, is it because the scangers that were causing this trouble have decided to take a weekend off? Um, I think not. I think it's more likely that once the outdoor dining started to reopen, the streets started to be occupied again by civilised people, um, and that acted as a deterrent for the scangers. And uh, I, I would also say that we, for the first couple of weekends, What we saw there was also a very strong reaction to uh, that tweet from the chief medical officer highlighting uh, the problems inside the city centre. And that that definitely um, created a major attraction for people to come in and cause a bit of trouble. But um, I I think what it goes to show is that, you know, if you return to some level of normality, that you will get rid of that sort of behaviour. So sense, well, sense prevailed with the opening up of outdoor hospitality and uh, we saw much more civilised behaviour. And uh, I was in Killarney for four days at the end of last week. And uh, it's kind of fascinating to see Ireland's COVID regulations um, in action. Um, I was sitting having a sandwich outside a hotel. I went into the toilet in the hotel And um, I saw all these people sitting around, having coffee, having drinks, eating food. And this is the middle of the day. And I was thinking to myself, obviously, these COVID restrictions don't really apply in County Kerry. Um, And then it sort of struck me, well, actually, these people are residents in this hotel. So they're allowed doing do that. And the hotel we were staying in, we were able to eat there um, at night. But yes, next door, there was a restaurant with shut down because nobody could eat inside i mean what is the logic of allowing people eat indoors in a hotel restaurant as long as you're a resident um, and not allowing people eat indoors in a normal restaurant uh, it's either it
1: a, it's either a good idea to be inside or not and it, it can't you can't have different rules for the same thing depending on who who you are It it, it as you say defies logic. But so do many of the COVID regulations all around the world. And I know the ones best here in the UK. One of the things I've got to warn you about is that we do have the India or Delta variant here in the UK. Now over 90% of actual COVID cases now uh, in the country are this variant. And at the moment, it could change. We know these things can change in a heartbeat, but at the moment, it's out of control. And that's why they have decided to not proceed with the next lifting of lockdown. But in the spirit of looking at what they do rather than what they say, that's what they've done. But what they've been saying for the last few weeks, and in particular what Johnson, my populist friend, has been saying for the last few weeks, right up until this weekend, was that he saw nothing in the data that would lead him to uh, delay the ending of restrictions. And then he ended up delaying the restrictions. Those of us that follow the data very, very carefully would point out that while he was saying there was nothing in the data from that moment to yesterday, the data didn't change. It had already changed when he said it hadn't. So yet again, some nonsense coming out of his mouth. There are a couple of things that worry me about this, this India variant is that you're just a few weeks behind us in terms of the spread of that because it's already in Ireland. It's in over 70 countries worldwide. The French today said it is today where the UK was relative to the the Delta variant only three or four weeks ago. So they're clearly very worried that they're going to replicate the UK's experience. And I think that you in Ireland should be worried too. I'm not convinced wholeheartedly or 100% that the UK is going to be able to fulfill the Johnson's promise to fully lift all restrictions on the 19th of July, because I've been looking at the modeling that went into that decision to delay the lifting. And these are official papers, um, official models. This, this is not some flaky scientist somewhere. And uh, those models' predictions are horrific for what the number of cases and hospitalizations, et cetera, are going to look like in the first and second week of July, in the run-up to this so-called lifting. And if the models are in any way correct, then we are in a lot of trouble. The thing about these models, so far anyway, is that an awful lot of the time they've been wrong. But that's the nature of models, both epidemiological and economic, the ones that I would know best. So just a mind-your-eye comment, Jim, that uh, things can go wrong very, very quickly, as we know. Can I can I
0: just ask you, um, the the da- the data that has come out about the efficacy of Pfizer um, and the AstraZeneca against the Indian variant um, seems to be very reassuring.
1: People get confused by what efficacy actually means, and there's all sorts of different types of efficacy. is does it stop you getting it? Does it stop you transmitting it if you do get it? And if you do get it, does it stop you from going to hospital and dying? And there are many different answers to all those sorts of questions. There does seem to be some reduced efficacy from getting it. So you, so even if you've been vaccinated, you might still get it. But where it really is still, where the vaccinations really are still very, very powerful, where they have over 90% protection, is that they stop you almost certainly, not 100%, but, but into the 90s of getting so ill that you have to need hospitalization that's what that's was published by public health england england yesterday on the basis of what they know so far so that latter point is very encouraging what it means is that we need to expect cases to continue at a high level if not to continue growing exponentially in the uk but the hope is that the hospitalizations and death figures will not be the same as they were back in january february
0: we saw here uh, yesterday a member of isag on radio uh, warning about the Delta variant and the fact that the uh, vaccines were basically not able to control it. Um, and yet we get official global data showing that actually the vaccines do um, have a significant controlling impact on it. Um, that, that's that been w- one of the real problems here. Perhaps it's the same everywhere. But from, from the beginning, uh, we get all of this conflicting information, and we have so called scientific experts coming out with all of these sorts of comments without any data or evidence base to support what they're saying. Um, it it sows it fear, it sows confusion, and um, it, it certainly doesn't help, I think, the proper behavior of people.
1: I worry greatly that some people almost seem to take some kind of macabre pleasure or satisfaction when things go wrong. When we do get variants, or when the numbers and/or when the numbers start to deteriorate again, and I don't know what motivates those those, those kinds of people, it's a puzzle. And when you make statements that ha- have no basis in fact or data, um, well, we we know from our own profession, Jim, there are lots of hacks and charlatans around, so-called economists that make all sorts of progno- prognostications that aren't based on anything, um, let alone a model. So uh, it's, it's a weird feature of so-called professionals. Uh, I think that you need to, to carefully choose your scientists that you listen to. Uh, you need to be as careful about that decision as you are about the economists that you listen to.
0: OK, Chris, um, we'll call it a day there. Uh, thank you very much for, uh, I hope, what listeners will find um, an interesting discussion. Thanks, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.
2: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech?